0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today is the second part in what will be a three-part series on Chira Obata. In today's episode, we follow Obata deep into the high Sierras as he has a creative and inspirational, and some would say spiritual explosion of energy. Please enjoy today's episode. Before we continue with Obata's journey into Yosemite and the High Sierras, I want to talk briefly about his activities in San Francisco to build an artistic community. In many of my interviews with art historians, we come back to the importance of artistic communities again and again, for a good reason. We often have to fight back against this myth of the lone artist, which I believe is a subgenre of the great man theory of history the idea that there are these lone figures, usually men, who single-handedly move the ball forward that changes the world around them. These are common narrative arcs in many of the bestseller history books that you'll find on shelves at Barnes and Noble, and they represent an perennial fascination as a society with people like Founding Fathers of the United States. The more history you read, though, the more you realize that these narratives are lacking context at best, and are willfully myopic at worst. That's not to say that there are not lone figures that step outside of their historical situation and challenge the assumptions of their time, but even those individuals usually have a cadre of compatriots where their ideas are tested, criticized, and explored. Obata wanted to create such a community in Japantown in San Francisco. One of the artists Obata chose to work with on community development was George Hebe. Like Obata, Hebe was born in Japan in the year 1886 and followed the similar trajectory of initially landing in Seattle before making his way down the coast to San Francisco. Like Obata, he contributed drawings to various publications. He later attended the California School of the Fine Arts where he honed his artistic skills and also met his wife, a fellow artist named Hisako Shimizu. He would ultimately remain in the East Bay, settling in Hayward, where he continued to produce art, organize exhibitions, and even started a language school. In addition to fellow Japanese artists, Obata also had relationships with artists like Purim Nall, a German-born artist and printmaker, nephew of the artist who created the bear on our flag and on the logo of this podcast. Nall studied art in the Bay Area around the turn of the 19th century, but headed to Europe following the 1906 earthquake. After studying art in Paris for a few years, he returned to California to teach his craft, which he continued for the rest of his life. While he spent much of his time in the classroom, he never stopped producing and assembling artists and a community around him. In the 1920s, due to his interaction with Japanese artists in his community, he developed an interest in Japanese art, and traveled to Japan to learn more about the techniques and the history. Upon his return, he was appointed as the curator of a collection of Japanese prints at UC Berkeley. Sadly, his life ended too early when he was struck by a car on the sta- streets of San Francisco. These are just two examples of artists that Obato was working with at his time when he was living in San Francisco. They ultimately collaborated to create the East-West Art Society, which held exhibitions of art connecting those two hemispheres. Meanwhile, Obata spent much of the 1920s traveling throughout California and documenting the landscape with his brushes and pencils. Amazingly, Obata covered quite a bit of space along the state, going as far south as Pasadena and as far north as Eureka. Like someone searching for the tool for the job, Obata experimented with his many styles and techniques, as well as subjects, also known as landscapes, ranging from realism to impressionism, from pencil to wet on wet. In terms of subjects, California's diverse flora gave Obata a trove of artistic options. From the foggy coasts of Northern California to dense forests of the redwoods, Obata relished the diverse landscape that is California. Eventually, after traveling throughout the state, Obata felt the time was right to make the pilgrimage that all of his travel had been heading to, Yosemite. Accompanying him on this journey was his friend Worth Ryder, an art professor at UC Berkeley. Originally from Illinois, Ryder moved to Berkeley as a child and graduated from Berkeley High School before enrolling at the UC. Although Berkeley would remain Ryder's home base, he would often depart for the East Coast or Europe to continue his arts education. While in New York, Ryder worked as an usher at the Metropolitan Opera, where he was privileged to absorb the music and conducting of Gustav Mahler and Arturo Toscanini. Additionally, when Ryder wasn't interested in the opera that was being put on, he would spend some time in the anteroom of the Opera House with a patron who didn't always care for the music selections either, Mark Twain. After his time in New York, he felt the pull back to the West Coast, where he returned to run a packing and travel business for people interested in exploring the Sierra Nevadas. He continued this business until he ultimately felt the pull back to the art world, and in the early 1920s, like many artists, he headed off to Europe where he absorbed the art scene and developed relationships with artists like Leo Putz and Hans Hoffmann. The latter of which he convinced to travel to San Francisco and put on a show at the Legion of Honor Museum. In addition to falling in love with the art scene in Europe, he also fell in love with the Alps, joining alpine clubs and relishing opportunities to cross-country ski throughout that idyllic landscape. This is the person that took Obata into the Sierra Nevadas for the first time. In addition to Ryder, they were also joined by another artist who tagged along with the pair on their journey, and that was Robert Boardman Howard, who was the artist commissioned to paint the mural in the lobby of the Iwanee Hotel. The three of them met on the valley floor and linked up and then traveled into the Sierra Nevadas for nearly two months. As we've discussed in previous episodes, Yosemite has long been a subject of fascination and inspiration for artists of a variety of backgrounds and media. Some of the artists we've discussed on previous episodes like Thomas Hill, Thomas Moran, Albert Bierstadt, and many others. Many of these artists sought to portray Yosemite in a romanticized and idyllic fashion. Portraying Yosemite as some kind of new Eden filled with transcendence and vital elements pulsing throughout its valleys and canyons and mountains. While much of this art is beautiful, it led to somewhat quaint, stereotypical cliches. The technique, by the time Obata had gotten to Yosemite, had run its course and become a virtual paint-by-numbers, such that serious artists had determined that painting Yosemite had almost become passé by this point. Obata, though, came into this landscape with a different vision and approach. Instead of focusing on the grandeur and the scope and the size of this glacial chasm, he instead decided to focus on subjects that weren't typically covered by artists before, lakes, thickets, flowers, ledges, and other areas that a hiker might pass by as they move through the valley on their way to one of the main features like Half Dome. In this way, Obata connects more with the work of Ansel Adams, who loved the grandeur, but whose most memorable photographs were those that were quiet and serene. Obata was able to meet and connect with Adams later in life. There was one person, though, that Obata wasn't able to meet, who influenced him directly in a much bigger way than any other person as it relates to Yosemite, which of course was John Muir. Obata regretted not being able to meet Muir before his death in 1914 but he imbibed much of his ideas through his writings, particularly his focus on the small notes of beauty amidst the thunderous symphony of the High Sierras. Like Muir, Obata incorporated this naturalist approach to his art, imbuing life and transcendence into small vignettes and scene. However, unlike many naturalist-geared artists, Obata avoided the kind of realism that had become trite. As we mentioned in our previous episode, Obata's goal was to capture the essence of the subject. What that actually meant for Obata is that he did not attempt to capture something accurately in a kind of scientific documentarian sense. That in many ways, that is a Western and 19th century historicist and empiricist approach. The goal of which was finding the objective meeting Instead, Obata would absorb the subject and then allow his mind to create the reality. This certainly was in keeping with the trends and styles in Japanese art, but often would gravitate away from that as well. Some of his waters show little relationship with Japanese style art, so in many ways you could say Obata was creating something unique. In terms of his preferences for the moments he captured, he had a wide palette, but his favorite particular time of day was the afternoon, and in particular, the weather he enjoyed was rainfall. The rain for Obata was dense with meaning, but most of all, it represented this idea of renewal, which against the backdrop of his experience in the 1906 earthquake, fire, and rebuilding, adds even more resonance to the viewer. His other area of emphasis was the teeming life of the Sierras. Most artists, as we've mentioned before, focused on the static images of mountains, focus on the transcendent, the stately grand eloquence of vistas and canyons and crevices and chasms. Instead, Obata wanted to find the unity in life, in all its interconnectedness. For Obata, nature had a kind of vibration, which calls to mind those scenes in the new Oppenheimer film, which take place early on in the film, he is struggling to sleep as his dreams about vibrating waves and shape pulse through his mind to realize this particular vision of the world obata repeats shapes and colors to create a sense of rhythm and motion for obata the world was imbued with a deep vitalism that pulsed another motif of his art was a sense of survival amidst adversity something that Obata dealt with as an immigrant to the United States with the growing racism that he was experiencing in San Francisco. The image that he chose was the image of a weathered tree battered by the forces of nature, yet whose roots kept it static and stuck and implanted in the landscape, unable to be moved no matter the force. These are the ideas, motifs, and vision that Obata's art brings to us from Yosemite. Now, to close today, before we wrap up with Obata and Yosemite, I'm going to read an article that was published in a Japanese newspaper called Shin Sakai in a series of issues. This article was written by Obata soon after he left Yosemite, and it was titled, Sierra Trip, Yosemite Creek Impressions, Following Old Mountain Path from the Upper Part of Yosemite Falls to the Valley. These are Obata's words. Yosemite Creek is located north of Yosemite Valley. The origin of Yosemite Creek is Mount Hoffman at 11,000 feet. This noble clear river runs through granite rock formed by glacier. The river turns into immense Yosemite Falls. The waterfall makes the music of heaven. It is music more inspiring than man-made music. We stayed 10 days at Wife Wolf Meadow here we were able to experience the endless diversity of great nature however compared to the size of nature my experience was very small like a poppy seed after waking up in the morning i wash my face in the creek the water is made of melted snow very cold but it's still soft when i dissolve japanese paints in the water they dissolve very gently during the day it is very hot by dusk it becomes cooler At night, I am warmed by the campfire. Before nine, I take that warmth with me into the sleeping bag. From the base of the trees, I count the stars. I go to dream to the melody of the creek and the song of the frogs in the meadow. This experience is nothing compared to nature, but I would not exchange this unforgivable, invaluable, heartfelt memory like shining stars among the trees nature is such a nourishing experience i felt almost sad to bid it farewell we've been acquainted with mr sullivan since carl Inn, so we were able to borrow his two donkeys we packed the food and painting materials into boxes and put the sleeping bags on top we left the tent at yosemite creek campground on july 7th at 9 in the morning there was no one else on the trail but by following the donkeys we would never get lost We were both half naked, wearing only pants. For three hours, we walked up and down the river. Then after another half an hour, we reached the origin of Yosemite Falls. We unpacked our gear and freed the donkeys to feed themselves. The donkeys went into a field of flowers. We prepared camp, sketched, and collected wildflowers. I have no words to express the beauty of the wildflowers. It would take two to three years to sketch all of these flowers. Everything is so beautiful. The trees and grass are set against a backdrop of rocks and ground. Green, red, black, yellow, and reddish earth. For example, pansies blooming in three colors, purple, white, and yellow. Sand dunes, forming of red and white broken rock, covered with the purple of clover. Indian paintbrush, vivid red in between the right rocks. Three-petaled white mariposa lily, The tiger lily with five petals in the front, five petals in the back, and five holes in the center. The heather blooming like a cloud of pink flowers on white rocks. I heard many people in the mountains that this year was a good rain, so the flowers are blooming well. The day is long, so we washed our bodies and clothes. The stew made by Mr. Ryder was delicious. We went to bed early in order to wake up early the next morning. I gazed up at the huge yellow pine tree. The moon was shining. It seemed like I could count each needle. On July 8th, we woke up at 4 a.m. I cooked breakfast by gathering dry twigs and pine needles. We put four boxes of food in between the trees, covered them with our sleeping bags, and put rocks on top. We put just the two boxes on the donkeys, and we carried our sketchbooks. We started down the trail at 6.30 a.m. and soon we reached the top of Yosemite Falls. Alongside the trail there was a garbage can for hikers. It was a mess because a bear had knocked it over. We were on a rocky trail below Eagle Peak, 8,000 feet high. With the sound of the donkey's bells, charan charan, we walked down the trail which looked like the edge of a saw, up and down and zigzag. We saw people, including women, coming up the trail so we put on our clothes. We've been naked in the camp and on the trail. It is good to be naked in hot weather in the mountains. Mr. Ryder wears a yellow shirt, blue overalls, and a visor instead of a hat. I wear my old fishing clothes and a Japanese towel stylishly dyed with a headband because my hair is far too long. Since coming to the mountains, we've become sun-tanned. My body's color is brown. Everyone who passes us might think I'm an Indian. Even though the donkeys carry two boxes, they take up space on the trail. When we go down the narrow trail with the sound of bells, people get out of the way. We walked three miles in three hours, and at 9.30 a.m. arrived at the back of Yosemite Lodge. We unloaded the donkeys by a pine tree, and I led the donkeys to the Merced River to give them water. Even though this is the same national park, Yosemite Valley is crowded with automobiles and the road is shiny with oil. There's a yellow line in the middle of the road and the donkeys refused to cross it. We waited for the cars to pass, then we pushed the donkeys across the road. We washed completely from head to toe in the Merced River and then returned to the pine tree. Mr. Howard, wearing his blue overalls, approached me smiling and rubbing his bald head. He took us to his tent at Yosemite Lodge. The tents, and occasionally a cabin, stand in between pine and cypress trees according to their numbers. It looks like a poor village, Most people eat at a restaurant or cafeteria. There is no grass going around the tents. It has the appearance of camping with a tent as someone advertised, but compared to camping in the mountains, it looks like living in a can. I'm glad I didn't come down here last night. I was very hungry, but first Mr. Howard guided us to the post office where I mailed the various wildflowers I had gathered. Then we crossed the wooden bridge over the Merced River and went to the cafeteria where we stuffed ourselves. Outside the window, I could see through a willow tree to the river where five or six trout were leisurely swimming. After eating, I bought several things at the general store. The road was crowded with cars, bumper to bumper like a school of sardines. Six, seven miles away from here, we can enjoy camping in nature. At Camp Curry, I talked to the clerk, but they weren't there. I had promised to leave Yosemite Valley at three o'clock to return to the mountains. I had some extra time, so I walked around and sketched. At three o'clock, I returned to the pine tree. Mr. Ryder also returned, and we brought the donkey to Mr. Howard's tent. We had gifts from San Francisco and we packed these carefully. Then with the sound of bells, we went back to our 8,000-foot home in the mountains. I hope you enjoyed Obata's words and his particular vision and experience in Yosemite, and I hope you use it as inspiration to visit the valley and the High Sierras yourself.